this is the red line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. In my house, I have a lovely, tall, antique, dark-stained wooden cabinet. But as much as I love that cabinet, it has a very old, dodgy magnetic seal on the front. Inside of this cabinet is a bunch of treasured items, as well as a collection of wine glasses and glassware. It's my fiancé's pride and joy. So now that I've set the scene, let's rewind to a few days ago, where I'm home alone, headphones in, listening to a book, sauntering through the hallway, when one of my pet rabbits comes barreling around the corner toward me. Startled by this rapid ball of fur, and not wanting to see his sweet but frankly dim little face smash into my shin, I quickly take a step back out of his pathway. And before I even have time to register what's happened, my elbow connects with the side of this cabinet. A new horror began to sweep over me as I turned around to hear the distinct sound of a cabinet door opening, a wine glass container falling over, and glasses beginning to roll out. One of them rolling straight out of the now open cabinet door and smashing upon the ground. And without thinking, I quickly used my other hand to shove the cabinet door closed. And upon the closure, hear a distinct clonking against the other side of the cabinet door. The sound of multiple glasses rolling over and now leaning against the door front. The other glasses don't sound like they've smashed, but I know the moment I take my hand off this cabinet door, with near certainty, I know the rest of those glasses will push the door open and they'll all roll out to join their smashed comrades upon the floorboards below. So I take a second to figure out what I can do. If I try to open the door, I might be able to catch the glasses of falls, but it could be multiple glasses, and I'm more than likely to drop them on the ground. Likely meaning having to replace even more wine glasses, and a possible very expensive trip to the vet when the rabbits keep running around, as I have a very important phone call in a few minutes, and my phone is in the other room. See, right in this moment, I haven't missed my meeting, the rabbits haven't put their face in the glass, and I've only smashed one wine glass. But that's at this moment. If I stay here, it'll mean missing the important phone call. But if I take that call, it'll likely mean that six Nike glasses will now be shattered in my hallway. You see, neutral, back, or forward, there's no good options. Whatever I do, the situation will get worse. And the reason I bring up a story about shattered glass this week is we're talking about a nation which itself could roughly be analogous with a shattered glass stuck back together. A nation that, much like myself in this situation, will likely make things worse with whatever decision they make. The nation I'm talking about today is Pakistan, or to be more precise, a part of Pakistan known as Baluchistan. You see, Pakistan was created during the partition of India upon the ousting of the British, designed to be a homeland for the Muslim populations living in the British Raj. But what we know is the borders of Pakistan today hadn't really existed before at any time. These new borders of Pakistan were really a British creation. See, the modern borders don't follow any cultural or tribal or even geographic lines. The nation of Pakistan is roughly a mosaic made out of the outskirts of other countries. These lines drawn on the map meant that the Punjab people were scattered between modern-day India and Pakistan, the Pashtuns were split between Afghanistan and Pakistan, and the Baluch, the people we're talking about today, in the south of the country, were split between southeastern Iran, southern Afghanistan, and southwestern Pakistan. So rather than a nation like Bangladesh, which is a fairly ethnically homogenous nation, Pakistan became a bunch of pieces stuck together, a mosaic of a nation. And the government in Islamabad ever since has been working very hard to make sure those pieces stay in place. The Baluch in particular have it pretty rough though. 
You see, even though they have a resource-rich province on the coastline with the world's largest deep water port within it, they also have some of the worst living conditions anywhere inside Pakistan. And any calls for Baluch nationalism or separatism are also very regularly met with heavy retribution from Islamabad. From the Baluch side, they want better conditions, and they're met with brute force, which simply just ratchets up the tension in the situation. For Pakistan, like me, they're stuck with their hand on the cabinet door, fearing that if they give more autonomy to the Baluch and give them what they probably deserve, it may encourage other parts of the country to do the same. And then Islamabad worries about how quickly the situation could devolve into an effective free-for-all with different ethnicities in the country. If concessions are given to the Baluch, then the Punjabis are likely to ask for the same. They also can't afford to stay neutral in the situation, because right now Baluch protesters are attacking Chinese infrastructure in the region, attempting to make themselves heard. See, Chinese investment is one of the main things keeping the economy of Pakistan going at the moment. And if many more investors are scared away by these attacks, well, things are only going to get worse inside Pakistan. But Islamabad also fears cracking down any harder than they already have been. And they have been cracking down pretty hard, as people are beginning to pay attention to the crackdowns. And as much as the international press seem to be underreporting this one right now, large-scale violence will likely bring about public pushback and even the beginnings of a new phase in the insurgency, which will certainly increase the global interest and it'll likely scare away even more of the international investment Pakistan is frankly desperate for. So what can Islamabad do? Crack down on the Baluch and risk inflaming the movement even further? Bury their head in the sand and watch foreign investment walk out the door? Or accept the demands of the protesters, respect their rights, and risk beginning a path that ends in Pakistan collapsing into four smaller states? And no godly idea which one of them ends up with Pakistan's arsenal of nuclear weapons. So what is Pakistan going to do? And how do we arrive at this no-win crossroads for the country? Well, to help us answer that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Melting a Mosaic As you know, Pakistan was created um, after the subcontinent was partitioned by the British in 1947. Um, and, and the British and the whole partition itself is really problematic. Um, the person who uh, did the partition, Cyril Radcliffe, was a lawyer who had never been to the subcontinent, didn't know anything about any of the political issues plaguing the communities there or what partition or what the demands of the Muslims and the Hindus, etc., were. And he basically just drew lines on a map and did partition. And of course, you know, the subcontinent is already a really rich and diverse part of the world. Um, South Asia alone, current South Asia alone, has over uh, 25 to 30 languages spoken, has over 20 ethnicities. It has about one fifth of the world's population. It has all the major religions, including most of the minor religions practiced in South Asia. So it very much is a melting pot, and, and Pakistan is, is part of that melting pot. Sahar Khan is a senior research fellow at the Cato Institute's Defense and Foreign Policy Department, with a research specializing in state-sponsored militancy, terrorism, counter-terrorism policies, with a particular expertise in India, Pakistan, Iran, and Afghanistan. She's also a member of the America Pakistan Foundation and the managing editor of Inkstick Media not to mention a long-time friend of this show. And we're thrilled to have it back on the show today. Pakistan's issue really has been how to create uh, nationalism or how to create a nationhood. Now, 
of course, there would be many Pakistanis who would probably disagree with me to say that all Pakistanis have a sense of patriotism and, you know, everybody uh, in Pakistan, you know, of course, is, is patriotic and, and wants Pakistan to prosper and all of that. But all of that is, is, is true. But I do think that the ethnic, linguistic and religious lines have also become divisions that the government has used sometimes to its advantage or has has used to extract resources from places and balochistan is a really good example of this and you know and, and so pakistan you know long story short i do think it's a mosaic nation um and the government over time has done certain things to create a sense of nationhood like for example Urdu is the national language of the country, even though only 8% speak Urdu. So, so the government is, is very aware of how divisive um, ethnicity and, and religion and, and linguistic issues have been. So they, they have tried to some extent create, you know, create a sense of nationalism. But in the grand scheme of things, Pakistan is still a very young country. So it's still grappling with issues of nationalism, which I think is something that many countries in the world can appreciate. So we're entering this conversation talking about a minority group inside, well, majority Pakistan. But as much as Baluch is an identity and a cultural group, it may not be the whole story. See, there are Baluch inside Pakistan, there's Baluch parts of Iran, there's Baluch parts of Afghanistan, there's even Baluch living abroad, and there are differences between these groups. There is even differences between the Baluch that live in the northern parts of Pakistani Baluchistan as compared to the groups that live in the south on the Indian Ocean. Obviously, the Afghans and the Iranians will have very different relationships with their Baluch populations, but let's go through the Pakistani relationship with the Baluch first. So how does Islamabad view the Baluch population and the Baluch state? When, when I think of Baluch and Baluch people, I think of, of course, Pakistan's province, Balochistan, which is the largest province in the country. But again, I, I think it is fair to say that, you know, Baluchis are, you know, part of Iran as well. Um, and they sort of span um, some parts of Afghanistan. And, you know, and this kind of points to the rich history of Balochistan as well. And I think it is important for people to realize that, you know, the, the grievances that plague Balochis today, the demands that they make from the Pakistani government, from the federal government today, and the resistance movements that exist today are very much rooted in pre-partition history and, you know, stem back to various empires. So, for example, in the 1500s, Balochistan, like Afghanistan to its north, it became divided into zones that was that was controlled by the Safed Persian Empire and the Mughal Empire um, to the east. And this basically, you know, created this Iran-Pakistan border of today, right? Um, Talat was a princely state in the subcontinent that was mainly Balochi. And after partition took place, Pakistan basically absorbed Talat. Um, and that's basically where modern day um, differences have begun. So the way that Islamabad views the government in Balochistan or, or the provincial government is Balochistan, I think at a basic level, it's okay to say that they don't get along. <laughs> um, but if we want to go deeper, um, the issue really is two parts. One is resource extraction. So Balochistan actually has the most uh, mineral resources that of, 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 of the country. It is also the largest province in Pakistan, but it's the most sparsely populated province. Even though it has all these resources like natural gas, various minerals, um, it has now the Gavadar ports, it it's linked to the Arabian Sea, just like Sindh is, through Karachi. 
it hasn't reaped the benefits. And the provincial government of Balochistan, this is one of their main grievances with the federal government, is that the federal government comes in, does all kinds of extractions, and any amount of money that they get from you know, mineral resources or whatever, they don't they don't give it to the provincial government. So the provincial government feels locked in, that it's unable to develop or, or provide services to its people, which is constitutionally supposed to do. So that's number one issue. The second issue, of course, has been the separatist movement. And this is something that Pakistan is very, very, very concerned about. Um, and, and Pakistan is not I mean, to some extent, Pakistan is a little paranoid. I think we can say that. But in this case, I don't think they're that paranoid. Again, it stems, it's rooted in history. Um, and, and I don't want this to be sort of like a history lesson, but very quickly, you know, Pakistan, when partition took place, it was West Pakistan and East Pakistan. East Pakistan in 1971 became Bangladesh after a very bloody and violent civil war. So basically, 1971, Pakistan lost a chunk of its territory. Now, as a new country, as a post-colonial state, it is very, very concerned about territorial integrity and sovereignty, right? And again, Pakistan is not alone in this. I think many states would, would um, you know, many states are, almost all states, of course, are concerned about their territory. Now, this is also when Balochistan and, and the sort of the separatist movement had begun. There was all, all, always violence in Balochistan. Uh, the Baloch politicians felt that their uh, concerns were not heard when the constitution was written, that the federal government constantly ignored them, um, and that they were not reaping the economic benefits um, of their land. Um, and so this is sort of where the separatist movement began. But then in 1975, there was a law passed in Pakistan that's called the Suppression of Terrorist Acts. And this was passed by then Prime Minister Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto. And he basically wrote this law specifically to go after Baloch insurgents because already there were whispers of demands that Balochistan wants a separate state too, right? If Bangladesh can do it, if East Pakistan can do it, why can't we, right? And and Balochis are not just in Pakistan, they're in parts of Afghanistan, they are parts in they are they are in parts of Iran. So why can't we be an independent state of our own? And Bhutto really wanted to squash it. That particular law, the 1975 Suppression of Terrorist Act law, eventually became the Anti-Terrorism Act of Pakistan in 1997, and it's called the ATA, and it basically forms the basis of Pakistan's anti-terrorism framework, right? But if you think about it, the anti-terrorism framework of Pakistan started with suppressing the Baloch resistance movement. And the federal government feels that the provincial government of Balochistan does not do enough to curb these separatists. Now, of course, the provincial government maintains that, you know, of course, they do not endorse violence. What they really are concerned with is that resources are being extracted and that paramilitary forces continue to run free in Balochistan um, and wreak havoc and terrorize Balochi people. And that also Balochi people don't have proper services to education, to health care, to, to tax reform, to transportation, to any of that. Um, and so this is sort of, these are sort of the two main issues that, that plague the relationship between the federal government and the provincial government. So Islamabad's view is sometimes they're a little wary of the government in Quetta, um, but oftentimes they are constantly arguing um, about, you know, power-related issues, if that makes sense. So another com one of the complicating factors in the relationship between Islamabad and Balochistan 
is Baluchistan's relationship with the Indians, Pakistan's longtime rival. Whilst there is deep tensions between Baluch and Nath- so the Baluch actually have a quite good ties with India. In fact, when you look at most social media posts, India is quite often referred to as a near brother state. So why have the Baluch made so much effort to make good relations with India? Is India looking to seek out and support separatist movements like Baluchistan inside Pakistan to weaken Islamabad's position in the country? Or is there another factor we aren't seeing here? You know, the thing is, I'm not sure, but I also think it kind of makes sense that they would, you know? Um, and this again goes to the whole idea of how sponsorship of militant groups work, right? Militant groups, like all other groups in the world, they need money, right? Anybody needs money to function in the world. So they need resources and they will look to anybody who will provide them certain resources. It could be money, it can be arms, it can be sanctuary, it can be, you know, rhetorical, diplomatic support, what, what have you. Now, India and Pakistan's history, of course, is um, traumatic. They don't get along, I think is a simple way of putting it. Um, but again, going back to history, in 1971, when Pakistan was going through its civil war, the Mukti Baha'i, who were the independence movement, the Bengali independence movement um, in East Pakistan, um, they eventually did get some support from India, and that's how they were able to win and, and secede and become a separate state. Pakistan remembers this, right? And Pakistan cannot forgive India for this aspect of the war. Um, and of course, Pakistan ignores all the factors that led to the war itself, which is like a separate discussion, you know, but 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 basically Pakistan cannot forgive India or, or forget it. So that's another reason why Bhutto in 1975 really went after the Baloch separatist movements, probably a lot more harshly than he would have had the 1971 civil war not occurred. Because again, he wanted to make sure that they were suppressed so that they were unable to get any kind of funding from India. Um, now, whether or not India is supporting Balochistan, it's a little unclear, right? Um, which could indicate two things. It could just mean that India is not supporting Balochi separatist movements, or it could mean India is so good at it that it's not open source data yet. But basically, you know, the Pakistan government and its military establishment, they blame India very openly and blatantly for supporting the insurgency in Balochistan. Um, they base their allegations on a reference to Balochistan by um, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi um, from the ramparts of, of Red Fort on August 15th, 2015. Um, they also cite the example of an ex-naval officer um, slash businessman named um, Kulbashan Jadav who allegedly or, you know, secretly was arrested by the ISI in Pakistan from Iran in 2016 and, and awarded the death sentence for his, um, you know, espionage. So India denies these accusations, of course, and it gets very upset with these um, and basically says that this is um, Pakistan's quest um, or strategy of deflection from its own sponsorship of Kashmiri militant groups. So right now it seems more like a blame game, you know. Um, Strategy-wise, I think it would make sense for India to at least try to help the Balochi insurgents. And whether or not Balochi insurgents are getting that help, all I see right now are just like allegations and analysis. No concrete evidence of this is what we see as India supporting Balochi um, separatist movements. Now, the question then also becomes is that does India, would India want Balochistan to become separate or 
to back or for Pakistan to disintegrate where Balochistan becomes a separate unit or one of those ungoverned spaces or what have you. I mean, personally, I don't think that's what India wants. Um, it would be bad for India and India's own projection of its regional power. Um, I don't think it wants more instability in the region already. It's dealing with instability in the form of its own sort of uh, saffron movement, its own right wing um, religious nationalism and the Naxalite insurgency that it's dealt with and its border issues with China um, and, of course, its relationship with Pakistan. So, again, I don't think India wants Balochistan to become separate. I don't see what they would get from it. Um, but again, you know, whether or not they get outside support from India, it's, it's hard to have a it's hard to have a concrete answer on that. Whilst there is this tension between the Baluch and Islamabad, can the planned investments Islamabad has for the South go ahead with confidence? To be honest, they are going forward. Um, China, you know, the China-Pakistan economic corridor began a few years ago. They've almost completed the first phase. Um, one of the first phases was, a, you know, building the Gawadar port, having it up and running so that it could serve as a sister port to the Tabahar port in Iran. And Gawadar is up and running. There's a lot of development. People are, are buying property there and, and moving there, etc. So it's it's done well in, in that respect. Um, and CPEC is moving along probably it's moving a lot more slower than it was thought. And it's unclear whether the third phase, which was supposed to be done by 2030, whether that will happen or not. Um, and CPIC itself has sort of been plagued by, by various issues. But in terms of Balochistan, you know, um, when CPEC started, now, again, you know, sometimes things look really good on paper and the ground reality is totally different. So on paper, one could argue you know, this is good. Pakistan needs infrastructure development, right? It needs um, energy sector reform. It needs power, uh, like more electricity grids and uh, more efficient electricity grids. It needs a better transport system, roads and railways, all of that. And China is a neighbor of Pakistan. It makes sense for China to do this. And, and, and Pakistan started with Balochistan, which again is the poorest province of the state and, and, the most that, and, and the one that needs the most infrastructure and is the least developed. So let's start in Balochistan. Baloch, of course, and this is where the provincial government is also involved. Balochi politicians, provincial government and insurgents, they all felt, and I think they're right in this, that they were not consulted when CPEC or the first stage of CPEC was agreed on. Um, they were not told about any environmental impacts. They were not told about what kind of revenue they would generate, what, what kind of jobs would be placed in the province. None of that stuff that really matters to them because they are the communities who will be impacted by the CPEC, CPEC projects that are in Balochistan. And this again fueled the Baloch resistance to such a point where Baloch um, separatists uh, actually attacked some Chinese engineers and killed a few. And in November 2018, I remember the Balochistan Liberation Army, which is a separatist group, uh, they attacked the Chinese consulate in Karachi, killing four people. Um, and their reason was that they wanted to stop um, what they described as Chinese oppression um, and reach into Balochistan. Um, now, China came back and and asked the federal government if they could you know, mediate, perhaps if, if China mediated between Balochi separatists and the, and the federal government, it would help the situation. That obviously did not go well, as one would have expected. So, you know, CPEC is, is, is a bone of contention and sort of another bone of contention between Baloch separatists and, and 
uh, the government of, of Pakistan. But I do think it's going to continue to go on because, again, CPEC is not just in Balochistan. It's sort of all over the country. And to some extent, at least Balochi politicians have recognized, um, especially the major party there, um, uh, the Balochi uh, Baloch political parties, there, there are two or three of them, um, and they've recognized sort of the economic benefits of having infrastructure built in their province. So while they're not really happy about not being consulted about the nitty gritty of, of CPEC, they are ultimately okay with it starting there. So I do think CPEC will continue on and it will probably continue to fuel uh, the separatist uh, movement as well. Whilst there are Baluch nationalism and separatist groups inside the Baluch parts of Iran and Baluch parts of Afghanistan, we only seem to see these attacks and violence coming from mostly the Pakistani parts of Baluchistan. Is there a reason that the Pakistani areas of Baluchistan seem to be more militant about the separatism, or is it just that the parts of Iranian Baluchistan and Afghanistan Baluchistan don't tend to report as much? So no, I mean, I think Pakistan is the one that has the most... Um, you know they, they have the largest Balochi population, um, and so it, and they have, of course, the Balochistan province, which is the largest chunk of Balochistan or the land that that Balochis um, would eventually like. So yeah, I think it makes sense that Pakistan deals with it the most. Um, the the area in Iran that has uh, Balochis is, is called Sistin Balochistan. It's but it's very very small, um, especially compared to the. Uh, Balochistan province in, in Pakistan. And again, it's mainly, you know, Iran will sometimes go in and it's considered like a lawless region where the Iranian government doesn't really have a lot of control. Um, some separatists will attack like Irani, um, Irani military. But again, it's, it's very small in comparison. So I don't think it's fair to say that it's unreported. It's just one of those things that makes local news, but doesn't really make international news. And to be completely honest, all the things that the Pakistani army has done, all the atrocities that they've committed against their own people in Balochistan, doesn't sometimes make international news, right? Um, so so anything that's happening sort of in Afghanistan and Iran with the Balochi population most certainly is unlikely to make international news. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's underreported. You have to look at the local news to really get what's going on on the ground um, to, to, to get to sort of get that ground reality. Um, in terms of Pakistan itself, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, Pakistan is the one that's been dealing with the most um, violence from from Balochi separatists and insurgent groups, mainly um, there, there are two big ones, um, Baloch National Army and the Baloch Liberation Army, and both of them have attacked uh, Pakistani paramilitary forces and Pakistani army. Uh, and soldiers. So, so Pakistan is the one who's dealing with it the most. And but again, Pakistan is also the one that's cracking down the most, right? Uh, Pakistan is not sort of sitting around uh, letting uh, Baloch insurgents get more power, right? I think Pakistan, a lot of governments oppress their own people, which is a really tragic thing of governance. But I think what Pakistan has done with Baloch is really really terrible. And, and this is something that Pakistan is now grappling with as it's dealing with uh, other various movements. There's another movement called Pashtun Tahafuz movement, which started a few years ago in which the Pashtun population has basically said that Pakistani military and parallel military and law enforcement agencies racially discriminate against Pashtuns, thinking that they are all Afghan Taliban or Pakistani Taliban and other militants when they are not and there's no evidence of that and so pakistan is sort of grappling with that um 
there's probably less appetite for that kind of movement had it stemmed from Balochistan. But again, Balochis have been so suppressed by the Pakistani government that they cannot even start a civil movement, if that makes sense. So whereas I would have thought, whereas you would have thought that like the Pashtun Tahfuz movement, there would be a Balochi version that would have started years ago. It probably should have, but they've been so suppressed that it's been, they, they can't start it, you know? So yeah, I mean, I think this is a big problem, but Pakistan is not, Pakistan is not innocent in this. They're not, the Pakistani government is not some sort of agent that's just been lying around who's like a victim of, of Balochi separatism. Um, everything from what I've read and, and done research on, I think Pakistan has been, has not been open to listening to Balochi concerns, to Balochi demands. They've been more, they have, they have, they have ruled with an iron fist more than they should, than they should. And I think this has become a big problem. And that's why you see uh, the insurgency where it is now. As we talked about at the start, Pakistan is kind of a mosaic, roughly glued together by Islam during the partition between India and Pakistan, with the nation ending up as a collection of distinct states. Quite a number of analysts who focus on the region express concerns that, well, if the Baluch were to gain more autonomy, then the Sindh and the Punjab and the Gilgalid Baltistanis and the Pashtuns would all push for autonomy as well. So what is your rebuttal to someone who would say that the idea of an independent Baluchistan simply creates another balkanizing Yugoslavia situation inside a country that, I remind our audience, has nuclear weapons? Is this a concern of many analysts in the region? You know, Pakistan has a lot of issues, no doubt. But the Pakistani army is very strong since its independence, has been acutely aware of its neighborhood, which is a tough neighborhood, right? It has India on its east, where they don't get along, but then they have Afghanistan to its west. And actually the history of Afghanistan and Pakistan is even more troublesome for those history buffs out there because Afghanistan actually didn't even want Pakistan to exist. So when it comes to territory, Pakistan is not messing around. And that's also why it's been so harsh on Baloch separatist movements, any mention of separatism is met with violence. And this is because of the civil war in 1971, because Pakistan lost a chunk of its country, right? East Pakistan became Bangladesh. I don't know many countries that have experienced that kind of severance, you know? Um, and so that's something Pakistan is acutely aware of. I do know that there are certain factions with, within the Baloch separatist um, movement that call for a separate land or separate country for Balochistan because that doesn't just involve splitting up Pakistan. That would involve Afghanistan, giving up um, some parts of its area, like um, some parts of the Helmand province and Kandahar province are, are Balochi, have Balochi populations. It would involve Iran giving up a, 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 a chunk of its land. Uh, so I don't, think, I don't think that's actually going to happen, to be honest. But if that ever, ever happened, I think it would be really bad because we're talking about a country that also has nuclear weapons and... I don't think the world really knows how to deal with a country that disintegrates, that also has nuclear capability. So it's in everybody's interest for Pakistan to remain solid. So Pakistan has become a bit of a regional Goldilocks problem for its neighbors. If given too much support, Pakistan becomes too strong, then the country may be bold enough to start to settle scores with Afghanistan, ramp up the brutal crackdowns in Baluchistan, 
and even more aggressively saber-rattle with fellow nuclear state India. Too weak though, and the country may break apart, and who knows what would be done with those nuclear weapons. And with a destabilized or decentralized Pakistan, the Baluch, once secured their homeland in Pakistan, may seek to reunite the other Baluch territories in Iran and Afghanistan as well. So this is not just an issue in Pakistan. On top of that, China also worries that its decades of investment between the west of China and its corridor through Pakistan to the Indian Ocean may be all flushed away. So the entire region is hoping to keep Pakistan in that Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold. But can this be achieved long term? And how will other players react when one side attempts to change the geopolitical temperature? Well, for that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. Mowing the Neighbor's Lawn If you look at a map, uh, it's very clear that Baluchistan um, occupies a really critical uh, geopolitical space, right? Um, you know, Baluchistan and, and Pakistan's Baluchistan um, sort of projects out on the Arabian Sea. And it serves as a gateway to Iran. Uh, it also serves as a, it borders Afghanistan. And uh, it's also a gateway to the Middle East, to the Gulf area. So uh, geo geographically, it's a really critical space. And indeed, there's a lot going on, which I know we'll get into in terms of uh, geopolitical rivalries and so on. Michael Kugelman is the Deputy Director of the Asia Program and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center. Michael's a leading specialist in Afghanistan, India, and Pakistan, and their relations with the United States and the West. He's also the editor and co-editor of 11 books, and has written for the New York Times, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, and other publications, covering topics ranging from the US policy in Afghanistan, to terrorism, water, energy, and food security throughout the region. And he joins us today. At least speaking uh, specifically about the, the Pakistan province of Baluchistan, it's a no-go area on many levels in the sense that it's very difficult to have media. There's very little free media coverage there. Uh, Pakistan controls uh, movement and, uh, and particularly media coverage there. So it's not easy for reporters, whether from Pakistan or from outside, to go in there and report on, on things happening. So that, that could be you know, so that, that informational shortage. Uh, I think that could be part of the reason why it's not talked about as much, just because there's not as much press coverage as there otherwise could be, um, given that it's very difficult for journalists to, to operate and to report from, from Baluchistan. One of the things that has always interested me about Baluchistan is the disparity between the defense world and the wider press world when it comes to this subject. So there are separatist movements all around the globe, ranging from Catalonia in Spain to Ambanzonia in Cameroon. And whilst those movements get some coverage by the press, Baluchistan gets almost none. The press just doesn't seem to pay attention to this one. But security services, on the other hand, dedicate an inordinate amount of time and effort into keeping the tabs on Baluchistan and its separatist movements. So why is there this disparity between such little press attention, but such major institutional attention on this particular movement? Well, I mean, I think, uh, again, uh, talking about Baluchistan, in this case, particularly in, in the Pakistan context, it doesn't compare to separatist insurgencies that have been uh, um, raging in other parts of the world. And you know, it's, it's similar in uh, Sistan and Baluchistan and in, in Iran. You have instability, you have volatility, you have violence at times, but you know, this is not a, a, an, an active conflict zone. But 
indeed, that is not going to appease intelligence operatives who obviously worry about any type of threat to the internal stability or the internal fabric of their of their country. So indeed, uh, Baluchistan is a place that has long been a concern for the um, for the authorities, uh, so to speak, just because of the of, of the past. I mean, if you look at Baluchistan and Pakistan, there is a long history of of insurgency, and indeed. As China has moved in, making Baluchistan a cornerstone of its infrastructure investments associated with the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, and specifically the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, that has certainly uh, intensified grievances uh, within the region, which have always been in great part uh, rooted around this idea of the Pakistani state um, working to exploit local resources and deny any of the riches, so to speak, to local communities. And with China doing the same thing, working actively with Pakistan to do that, it's obviously, it has made local communities very unhappy and upset. There have been some protests, uh, which of course have not gotten much media attention in Pakistan, but they are happening. And this all concerns the the agencies. So for sure, the intelligence agencies, I mean, that's that's quite clear. Um, and I think that Baluchistan, if you sort of zoom zone out a bit, it's just a very uh, volatile space for many reasons. Um, the Pakistan-Iran border has been a site of cross-border violence carried out by by militants. Uh, that obviously is going to be a concern for the security agencies. And according to Pakistan, uh, according to uh, Pakistani officials, the insurgency or the separatists in Baluchistan are supported by hostile actors, i.e. India. So obviously that's also going to be a concern for Pakistan. No one could dispute whether that allegation is true or how true it is. But certainly this is a concern and has been a concern of of the Pakistanis for quite some time. If you look on the on the Iran side, if you look at Sistan and Baluchistan and Iran, Iran has long accused the Saudis, of course, are the, the, the main regional rival of Iran, of trying to stoke trouble in that region and backing anti-state militants in Iran. Uh, you also got the nuclear uh, facilities in Baluchistan, in Pakistan. So for all these reasons, you know, it's th this is a region that's going to be a big concern for security agencies, intelligence agencies. And I think that for them, they prefer that it not get as much attention within the international media and the public. They don't want it to get, they don't want to draw, they don't want attention drawn to the fact that you have these very volatile spaces. But indeed, there has been plenty of commentary, including what we're discussing today, about the region. But indeed, for those reasons I mentioned, um, you, you're, you're always going to have a significant level of concern uh, from these intelligence agencies, and that, of course, translates to a presence on the ground of these agencies. One of the crucial reasons this area has become so important to Islamabad, though, is the China-Pakistan corridor, where goods could be trucked or trained from the western China down the spine of Pakistan to the southern coast and the port of Gwadar. This would bypass the majority of the Indian Ocean, the Strait of Malacca, and crucially, the South China Sea. It would also cut over 5,000 kilometers worth of a journey off between Rotterdam and Chengdu. At one point, some analysts were saying that China might send as much as 20% of its train through this corridor, but these days, pretty little trouble is down it. So why is that? Why hasn't this corridor been more of a boom for Beijing? Yeah, this is a critical point that indeed um, the development of a port in uh 
in the city of Gwadar in Baluchistan, you know, on on the water right there. That was meant to be a signature project of the China-Pakistan Economic Quarter. And indeed, it has not gone anywhere. There's been very little activity on the port, very little transit, uh, not much going on, efforts to build roads out from, from Guadar stretching um, uh, through the province uh, to, the, to the capital, Quetta, hasn't made much progress. And in terms of why, well, there's a number of, of explanations, interpretations. One is just it's gotten caught up in the broader malaise of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, where a lot of the hope for progress hasn't panned out just because of um, uh, financial problems. Uh, and I think that China could conceivably be concerned about the security conditions in Baluchistan, a concern that I think has, has increased over the last year or so as Chinese nationals have been attacked uh, in terrorist attacks by Baluch separatists and at times by the Taliban, by the Pakistan Taliban. Again, these attacks have happened outside of Baluchistan as well. But, you know, I, I think that um, Beijing is willing to uh, tolerate a lot of risk in its investments in volatile spaces. I mean, you look at the history of its investments in areas of sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia uh, and agriculture and other spaces that are known to be hotbeds for volatility and violence, and they've still invested there. And they've invested in Pakistan, even though several of their nationals have been have been targeted in recent years. But I think that um, as the intensity of these attacks on Chinese nationals has picked up over the last year or so, I think that has given it, uh, I think that has given it some pause and wanted to be more careful about um, how present it is and how active it is in building up these projects. And in fact, they're have been some some news reports in recent uh, in recent weeks, uh, including in the Asian Nikkei Review, that China has actually requested that it bring in its own security into Pakistan to protect its uh, its people there. That would be that's that's huge if true. In the sense that for many years China has brought many of its own inputs into Pakistan, uh, labor, capital, of course technology, but it's never brought its own security. It's always dependent on Pakistan for that. But if it's so concerned now about security that it's wanting to bring in its own folks, well, I think that says something about its broader perceptions of the security conditions on the ground, and especially in Baluchistan, which again has been you know, the main locus for CPEC activity in, in Pakistan, but also has been you know, a, a constant source of volatility and threats directed at uh, the Pakistani state and its 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 uh, its development activities there, but also the Chinese state as well. So, bottom line, I think is a combination of factors here. Uh, you know why there hasn't been as much progress in infrastructure development in Baluchistan as hoped for. One is you know the financial situation. Pakistan has been struggling. It's been hesitant to take on more Chinese loans uh, and China's own concerns about security conditions on the ground. So these attacks are mostly happening against Chinese and Pakistani infrastructure inside the Pakistani parts of Baluchistan. But are there other attacks happening in the Afghan or Iranian parts of Baluchistan? Are those movements over there as militant as these ones are? Yeah, so uh, in terms of you know quantity, I think that there have been more in, in Pakistan. I mean, this does not mean that there have not been attacks in Iran. There have, but... As I understand it, uh, much of the violence has consisted of cross-border uh, cross border violence. Now, in terms of Afghanistan, Afghanistan is interesting in the sense that um, 
there is a history of Baluch separatists taking up uh, uh, sanctuary, safe havens in Afghanistan to escape the, the Pakistani military, which is sought to go after them. And they keep a low profile in Afghanistan. Um, now, what's unclear with the Taliban now in power in Afghanistan, or it's been in power for almost a year now, um, you know, the question is how Afghanistan, how the Taliban regime will deal with these um, with these Baluch in in Afghanistan. And you know, we have seen one of the notable trends in in militancy in the region in recent years has how there have been these new um, link-ups between Baluch separatists and Pakistan Taliban militants. Now, what that means for the Taliban in Afghanistan, which is a separate group from the Pakistani Taliban, but is very much allied with it on many levels, spiritual, ideological, operational, does that mean that the Taliban in Afghanistan is going to try to extend some type of support and assistance to these Baluch fighters that have taken up uh, safe havens in, in, uh, in Afghanistan? That's not known, um, but it certainly is a concern for Pakistan, which, as I had said before, accuses India of backing Baluch separatists. Now, there are also innocent Baluch, non-militants, just the Baluch civilians who have fled to Afghanistan as well, fearing violence from the Pakistani states. So it's all very complicated. But to get to your, to get to your question, my understanding is that when you want to look at, at issues of violence and the threat of violence, that is largely centered around Pakistan, around Baluchistan province um, in Pakistan. As I said, you are starting to see these Baluch militants carry out attacks outside of Baluchistan, elsewhere in Pakistan. But I do think that the sources of violence um, uh, mainly are within the, the, uh, the Baluchistan province in Pakistan, more so than Iran's Baluchistan. If China does end up deploying troops into Baluchistan, will it just be to protect the port area of Gwada, or we might see them running operations in other parts of Baluchistan as well, whether it be inside Quetta, which is quite far from the port, or down the transport corridors? How widespread do you think the Chinese counterinsurgency operations here might end up being in the long run? Well, everywhere, just because um, you know the entire province of, of Baluchistan and Pakistan is an area that, that China has targeted. I mean, there's been efforts to build roads stretching from Gwadar to the capital of Quetta. So really, I mean, that means that if you look at this from the perspective of China's interests, the entire province is, is very significant in the sense that it's had plans and it has carried out plans to do development work uh, in many different parts of the province, not just in, uh, not just in Gwadar. Well, in a scenario like that, let's say Chinese security forces are protecting Chinese workers building a bridge somewhere in Baluchistan, and a riot breaks out over the Chinese workers getting paid more than the locals. Things get out of hand, and the Chinese security forces open fire, killing 50-odd Baluch. How would Islamabad likely respond to that? Deep as the relationship is between China and Pakistan, and as much as Pakistan gives China a lot of leeway to do the types of things that it would not let other countries do in Pakistan. Um, and that includes, quite frankly, cases of Chinese laborers actually beating up uh, Pakistani police forces for not letting them leave their base camp uh, for social reasons. That's happened in the past, and it took a long time for Pakistan to make arrests um, of those Chinese laborers. At any rate, as much as Pakistan gives Chinese, uh, China and Chinese nationals in Pakistan a lot of leeway, I really think it's, it's, it's put its foot down. 
because you know it would fear the very type of nightmare scenario that you lay out that if chinese security forces are in pakistan and there's some type of attack and china chinese security forces respond by opening fire and kill dozens of pakistani civilians that would be obviously a nightmare on on many de- different levels and that's not what pakistan would want let's be honest i mean if this if this trend keeps playing out of chinese workers continuing to get attacked even after uh, Pakistan has uh, repeatedly pledged to provide full support, keeps failing to do that, then things get a bit dicey between Pakistan and China because the security issue in Balochistan for uh, it has become a what I would describe as one of the, the relatively rare tension points in a China-Pakistan relationship that otherwise is very is very robust and very warm. A number of the analysts we spoke to for this piece told us that there is a genuine worry inside the government in Islamabad that if Balochistan were to gain independence or even wide-ranging autonomy, that it would create a balkanization of Pakistan, that the Sindh and the Punjabi and the Pashtun would then all call for similar concessions, and the end result would be ripping Pakistan to three to four pieces. How credible do you think those fears are? Well, I mean, I certainly recognize that that is a fear uh, harbored by many in Pakistan, uh, certainly within the public and also within the state and and the military and the intelligence agencies, because, you know, it is important to acknowledge that, you know, in 1971, there was a war that uh, resulted in the independence of Bangladesh, and that entailed Pakistan losing a very large amount of its territory, because, of course, present-day Balochistan had been known as East Pakistan uh, until 1971. So there is this long-running fear uh, among many of Pakistan, not everyone, but quite a few folks, and certainly the nationalist crowd that you allude to, that indeed the Baluch are trying to replicate what happened in 1971. And of course, the fact that India um, supported the Bengali uh, independence fighters, that, that plays into this as well. It sort of plays into this, uh, this allegation of Indian um, support for the Baluch cause, because after all, India helped break up Pakistan one time. Why wouldn't want to help do it again? So, so I could acknowledge and recognize the fears, but quite frankly, you know, we, we talk about how uh, Baluchistan is a hotbed of volatility and you have a, a insurgent movement there, but there is no capacity. There's zero capacity on the part of these these separatists to actually successfully carve out a separate homeland. I mean, they've been crushed by the Pakistani military for, for decades. And you know, this is a part of another reason why there have been so many problems in the sense that the Pakistani military has used scorched earth tactics in Baluchistan to crush this insurgency and you still have uh, Baluch militants, they're still there, but they don't have the ability to mount an actual successful insurgency and and defeat uh, the Pakistani military. It's simply not going to happen. And in that sense, you know, I would look at what they've done with their attacks in recent years more as an, not, not, not an indication of weakness, but an indication that they lack the ability to do what they may otherwise want to do, like wage an actual insurgency to defeat the, the, the Pakistani state in Baluchistan. You know, they're carrying out attacks when they can, uh, including in soft locations against the Pakistani state and Chinese targets as well. That's that's what they do have the capacity to do. And the fact that they are getting support now, in some cases from the Pakistani Taliban, that helps ramp up their capacity as well. In the last few decades, the U.S. has prioritized stability in Islamabad over the right to the Baluch, stating that as bad as the situation is at the moment, 
a balkanized or even a separating Pakistan would be far worse. So what are the US strategic aims inside Baluchistan? What is it hoping to gain from this current position? Yeah, so certainly I would argue that the US is very careful about how it, or certainly what it says about Baluchistan, uh, but also how it looks at it. It recognizes that Baluchistan is an extremely sensitive area. And indeed, I mean, the US, even though we could talk about the uncertain future of the relationship between the US and Pakistan, it's a workable relationship, and the U.S. wants to maintain a relationship with Pakistan. Um, and, you know, it's true that some may have thought some years ago that it's better to be on Pakistan's good side than its bad side because of its because of its nuclear weapons issues and its history of militancy and so on. Uh, I'm not sure if that view is a dominant one in Washington now. I think it's not a priority, and you don't have people uh, in the in the administration uh, saying, "Oh, we really got to prioritize making this relationship work." But there is a desire to to make it work on some levels, to have a baseline of cooperation in a variety of spaces, and so trying to sort of get involved in the Baluchistan issue would militate against that goal, just because this is something that Pakistan doesn't want anyone uh, getting involved with. But from a perspective of U.S. interests, yes, Baluchistan will be of concern because what is, you know, what is the main U.S. interest in in South Asia uh, and, and specifically Pakistan? It is stability, you know, very broad, very, very big, but that's that's what the main interest is. And indeed, when I had said at the top that you have a, a wide array of sources of what I would describe as you know, instability, concern, volatility in Baluchistan because of the insurgency, because of the presence of uh, Pakistani intelligence, because of the cross-border militancy involving Iran and Pakistan, because of concerns about India's influence, and so on. That, I think, is something that will certainly keep the U.S. alert to what is playing out um, in Baluchistan, uh, for sure. But you are not, you don't see, and you will not see U.S. officials make an issue of Baluchistan um, in in either way. Obviously, there are a lot of accusations about India funding the Baluch movements. But how far would India actually be willing to push this? Does India actually see any benefits from a collapsing Pakistan over its border? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, India doesn't have an interest in a in a civil war in Pakistan. It certainly would not see that does not want to see that happen. Uh, and certainly, one could raise questions about the possibility of um, Indian uh, intelligence operatives backing the Baluch separatists in some way, sort of to push back against what what Pakistan has done with groups like Lashkar-e-Taiba, right? I mean, we know. I mean, this is a fact. This has been well chronicled in in research and scholarship that. The Pakistani intelligence agencies have provided backing to anti-India militant groups, and specifically Lashkar-e-Taiba, which carried out the 2008 Mumbai attacks, and Jaish-e Mohammed, which has carried out attacks as well. So, you know, given how Pakistan has has leveraged um, uh, militant non-state actors to an advantage, I mean, you can't rule out that India has been uh, been doing the same thing uh, to an extent, but it hasn't been as proven with the scholarship. And so I think that sort of stepping aside from that, more broadly speaking, India doesn't want Pakistan to see a full-fledged insurgency. It doesn't want to see balkanization. Now you may have some some hotheads or some, you know, some some talking heads that are looking to draw some attention. You may talk about how that would be great to see a free Baluchistan. But I think in terms of official state policy, you're not going to get that uh, at all. I think that for India, its main focus on Baluchistan. Is, is in Iran, where, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this, it's been 
trying to help Iran develop its ports, uh, Chabahar, which of course is very close to Gwadar, it's on the other, it's on the Iranian side of, uh, of Baluchistan. That's been an important policy objective for, for India to help Iran develop that port and develop accompanying infrastructure uh, so that India can hasten access to Afghanistan and onward to, to Central Asia. So I think that's where India's focus is on Baluchistan. Its focus is on Chabahar, uh, much more so than, you know, everything happening in in Pakistan's Baluchistan, obviously it's keeping an eye on it for, for its own reasons, its interests and security reasons, but I, I think that it wants to focus a lot more intently on, uh, on Chabahar in Iran. Currently, most of the attacks against infrastructure against Chinese-funded infrastructure inside Pakistani Baluchistan, but do you think we're likely to see Baluch separatists attack Indian-funded projects in Chabahar in Iranian Baluchistan, or will things continue to pretty much be limited to the Pakistani parts? Compared to the types of security stresses that Pakistan and China face in Gwadar, um, in Pakistan, you know, it, it it can't it cannot compare. And you know, maybe part of the reason is that just like there's been a lot of setbacks to progress in Gwadar, there's also been a lot of setbacks in progress in Chabahar. And a major reason for that is that India has limited its financial uh, commitments to Chabahar because of the U.S. sanctions regime on Iran. And, you know, we, we've talked so much, or not, there's been so much commentary in recent weeks about how India is not going to let the sanctions regime on Russia get in the way of its engagements with Russia. But, you know, in, India has a special relationship with Russia that it does not have with Iran. I mean, it has a good relationship with Iran. Much of it has been driven by economic cooperation, including uh, hydrocarbon imports over the years. But India does not have such a strong relationship with Iran that it's going to be willing to defy a U.S. sanctions regime uh, in order to pursue its interest, unlike in the Russia context. So India has been very cautious in, 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 in engaging financially with Iran on the Chabahar port project. Now, another issue is just the, you know, the, the slowness that you tend to get with, with India in these, in these efforts. I mean, India is a democracy. It's a bit of a messy democracy in the sense that when it comes to implementing policies, it can take a long time because of a need to get various, uh, you know, stakeholder approvals in India, consultations, all of that. It could just take a long time to, to implement plans. Now, Iran has been raring to go. India wants has has wanted to move forward, but also there's just have been these bureaucratic uh, and political slow ups. But I do think the sanctions issue is what has most impacted the slow progress with Chabahar. And given that there hasn't been as much going on, it suggests there hasn't been as much of an Indian presence on the ground in Chabahar. That would, I think, suggest that you know there wouldn't be as much of a of a need for for. Um, enemies of India and Iran for that matter to try to target that area. But, uh, you know, the other interesting thing here is that the Saudis obviously are always looking for ways to undermine Iran, their regional, um, their regional rival, and that includes wanting to undermine Chabahar's development to the extent that they can. But Saudi Arabia has an increasingly close relationship with India. Particularly, I think it's seen that as India has slowed down its, uh, its commercial cooperation with Iran, Saudi Arabia has sought to swoop in, and India has also sought to strengthen its relationship with Saudi Arabia, particularly in terms of energy cooperation. So I think that the Saudis would perhaps be very careful in terms of 
you know, their own potential ulterior motives or goals to engage in, in nefarious activities in, in, in Chabahar because they wouldn't want to alienate their growing relationship with with India. Um, so there's that very interesting Middle East geopolitical aspect to this whole thing too, the Saudi Arabia-Iran rivalry, how India fits into that and what that could mean for India's, for the safety and the security of, uh, of Chabahar. It's a very interesting area to look at. As the international community continues to get more and more invested into the security of Baluchistan, do you think we're likely to see stability go up or down over the long term? Well, I think the main uh, signpost it will be the the story of Chinese investment in Baluchistan. Uh, if CPEC continues to lose momentum, and you just don't see as much of a Chinese presence there, then you know that could calm things down in the sense that uh, you know Baluch separatists will have one less grievance. Um, and I think that be difficult for Pakistan to continue to engage in for infrastructure development in Balochistan without the types of Chinese assistance that it was getting. So in other words, if you have less of a, of a footprint of the Pakistani state and certainly the Chinese state in Balochistan, that, that could calm things down um, for sure. But I, I don't think China would want to reduce its footprint in Pakistan. Uh, Balochistan and broader Pakistan continues to be a major priority area for the Belt and Road Initiative, which I don't think Beijing is ready to let fold uh, just yet. So that's what I'll be watching is to see to see wh what type of presence you have of the Pakistani state and particularly and also China in Balochistan, because that'll drive the grievances and that'll sort of give an indication of what the insurgency will try to do. And then there's the other issue, the sort of the murky issue of, of the Indian factor, the Indian role. Uh, you know, if it's true that India is providing some forms of support to Baluch separatists, um, you know, that that certainly could weigh in on this broader story. And keeping in mind the broader geopolitical dynamics, India is a is a is a bitter strategic rival of not only Pakistan, but also China. Uh, and so as the India-China relationship continues to struggle, as the India-Pakistan relationship continues to struggle, if India believes it can derive advantages from backing um a violent non-state um, presence, pardon me, violent non-state actors like Baluch separatists that target both Pakistan and China, well, certainly there could be advantages for India in that regard. And if if a group like the Baluchistan Liberation Army in, in Pakistan is able to get external support, then obviously that'll strengthen its capacities. So the U.S. have chosen to back Islamabad, citing stability over sanctity. But who are the Chinese and the Iranians back? Will they seek to boost the Baluch movements enough to threaten Islamabad in hope of gaining better trade deals? Will this lead to the creation of a cold war between an Indian-backed Baluch and a Pakistani-Chinese-backed security force? Or will all of these regional powers seek to suppress the movement to protect their own treasures? Well, to answer that, we turn to our final guest. Part 3 Finding the fault lines. It's a religiously based state made up of several ethnicities joined together solely by their the fact that they're not Hindu but Muslim in a perpetual conflict with India over uh, Kashmir and uh, really, really over the division of British India going back to the, to the Raj. James Dobbins is a senior fellow and distinguished chair in diplomacy and security at the RAND Corporation. He was also the Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, Special Assistant to the President for the Western Hemisphere, 
a special advisor to the President, Secretary of State for the Balkans, and Ambassador to the European Community. Dobbins also served as the Special Envoy for Afghanistan, Pakistan, Kosovo, Bosnia, Haiti, and Somalia for the administrations of Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton. And in 2013, he returned to the State Department to become the Obama administration's Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. And we're thrilled to have him on the show today. It's a, it's a state dominated by the Army, and the Army is centralized. Although, of course, it has regional commands, but they're not driven by regional considerations. They're driven by national considerations. That holds the country together. The politics are uh, are more regionally uh, oriented. The parties, uh, although national, uh, have their have their strength in different regions, uh, and there are uh, separatist and uh, and regional parties that uh, that don't want to belong to Pakistan. So, for people who maybe don't follow Pakistan as closely as you do. How powerful is the Pakistani army? How much influence do they have on the nation's politics? Well, it's pretty opaque. It's usually uh, by results that you can tell who's uh, behind the scenes making decisions. Uh, the, uh, the army, of course, has taken over uh, several times in Pakistan's history uh, and governed the country directly. But uh, for the last uh, decade and more, and for most of the time, Pakistan has, has been uh, governed by elected governments, but uh, the army uh, has the sources of control and influence by reason of its importance in the state that is often uh, deployed to influence the government and to replace the government. So uh, the army is, occasionally intervenes uh, directly, but more often exercises its influence uh, indirectly. In the period during the Afghanistan war, when the security of Pakistan was crucial to the viability of the U.S. operations inside Afghanistan, obviously the U.S. worked very closely with the Pakistani government at the time. How harshly was the Pakistani government cracking down on Balochistan separatism in the south? Well, it's been a, a long-running uh, insurgency. Uh, the army uh, practices a variety of ta- tactics. It uh, co-ops uh, uh, groups that it can. It uh, tolerates groups that it uh, has no choice, and it and it represses groups that it can. Uh, I think uh, in the Baluch case, it's been mostly repression, uh, but obviously not entirely successful. Obviously, Islamabad makes the claim that a lot of the Baluchistan funding and support comes from India hoping to weaken an internal Pakistan. How true do you think that actually is? Do you think India is funding the Baluch separatist movements in order to try and weaken Islamabad's position and draw strength elsewhere? Well, I think it's plausible that India is is aiding the movement. It uh, would be consistent with India's interests in foreign policy to uh, distract Pakistan from uh, making trouble in Kashmir, for instance, uh, sort of offsetting uh, the kind of militancy that Pakistan encourages in Kashmir against uh, Indian rule by uh, tit-for-tat. During the majority of the U.S. war in Afghanistan, many of the Taliban fighters and supporters would regroup, resupply, and even train over the Afghan border into Pakistani Balochistan. Quetta, the Baluch capital in particular, became a hub of weapons and men transiting into Afghanistan. In quite a number of documented cases, it was Quetta where things would be assembled before they transited over the border into Afghanistan to fight the Americans. So why would the Baluch be so open to assisting the Taliban? Were they doing it for religious reasons or money 
or supporting the Pashtun Taliban in hope that the Taliban would return the favour and help their separatist movements once they get into power. Why did the Baluch offer safe haven to the Taliban for so many years? The relationship between the Taliban and the Baluch was really influenced by national politics, by, uh, by the army and by the uh, ISI, the Army Intelligence Agency, who wanted to keep uh, the Pakistani uh, Taliban. Well, first of all, they didn't want to, uh, they didn't want to uh, increase the number of uh, separatists uh, militant movements in Pakistan that were uh, trying to overthrow the, the Pakistani government, and therefore they weren't willing to crack down on the Taliban, the Afghan Taliban, because they didn't. They had enough enemies without uh, making another one. But beyond that, they had an offensive reason, which was to keep uh, India off balance and and diminish Indian influence in Afghanistan, and uh, they saw an interest in keeping the Taliban alive. I mean, I think the United States back in 2001 was successful in persuading Pakistan to abandon support for the Taliban government. But what it didn't understand was, and didn't understand for four or five years, was that the Pakistani government had abandoned the Taliban government, but not the Taliban. And what was the Indian end goal into giving the support to these groups like the Baluch separatists? Well, I think you'd, you'd, you'd get different answers from Indians and Pakistanis. Pakistanis naturally saw it as a malign and directed at them. Uh, Afghanistan, India's relations with Pakistan, with Afghanistan were generally based on an Afghanistan that was peaceful and not uh, subject to inordinate Pakistani influence, not an area where uh, guerrillas, uh, where uh, insurgents could be trained to operate in Kashmir, for instance, or uh, terrorist movements that had India as a target could uh, organize. After the Baluch attacks on the Chinese port of Gwadar, the Chinese have offered Pakistan to provide security for the port themselves, either through private Chinese security or deployed Chinese soldiers. But do you see this as just a first step in a situation where China might end up sending large deployments to combat Baluch separatism movements in an offensive manner in the name of keeping Chinese investments secure? Not really, no. China has been remarkably successful in avoiding support for insurgency movements and, and involvement in the local, uh, local civil wars. You know, Chinese foreign policy has been changing recently to a more uh, adventurous, uh, if you might say, but it's, uh, that's been only on the margins. That would be a change which would have considerable ramifications more generally if it became uh, customary for China to do that. One of the areas the Chinese have flagged as a potential danger spot is Quetta, just over the border from Afghanistan. Even though the Taliban have taken control of Afghanistan now, Quetta still maintains quite a lot of arms dealers, drug smugglers, and insurgent support infrastructure. Do you think Quetta is still a potential danger spot for the government, or are these worries overblown? And these groups have moved their support infrastructure over the border back into Afghanistan. The Taliban, I mean, it, it's true that the Quetta Shura probably has mostly moved to Afghanistan. The Quetta Shura was the Taliban leadership structure, and that's moved to Afghanistan for the most part. Uh, although I'm sure they have had some roots in Pakistan. Uh, as to uh, other uh, militant movements beside the Pakistan, besides the Afghan, besides the Afghan Taliban, there are many 
and uh, they're all uh, prospering. In one, uh, the number of them are operating in Afghanistan. The U.S. has always prioritized making sure Pakistan maintains stability above all. So does the U.S. support Pakistan's insurgency crackdowns on the Baluch separatists, prioritizing Islamabad stability over the Baluch's call for autonomy? Well, yes. I mean, I think the, the U.S. wants to see Pakistan suppress or deal successfully with the various militant movements and to stop itself supporting militancy, which of course is part of its strategy of offsetting hostile militants with friendly ones. Uh, and uh, if a crackdown was uh, called for, I don't think the U.S. would have any difficulty with it. And in the past, what sort of support has the U.S. offered for these crackdowns? Is it just intelligence or is it military assets or is it photography? How involved are the U.S. with these crackdowns in the Baluch public? Well, I think it's more a question of how much, how much help Pakistan would want and, and, and be ready to acknowledge. Uh, the U.S. was pretty heavily engaged in supporting Pakistan's anti-insurgency, anti-militancy efforts uh, a decade ago. And uh, a series of uh, incidents and crises uh, in the relationship led to uh, a diminishment of U.S. involvement, U.S. military support. Uh, in fact, it cut off of it, and it's not really resumed. Now, this was largely focused on the Northwest Frontier province uh, and uh, the uh, areas uh, bordering Afghanistan there, where uh, the Haqqani Network and other Afghan militants were operating. Obviously, we can't predict the future, but at this current point, do these separatist movements in Kashmir and Sindh and Baluchistan work together against the government in Islamabad? Or, frankly, they're much more regionalized and they don't really function together? They're all operating against a single enemy, so I suppose there's a, you know, my enemy of my enemy is my friend, but I don't think there's much coordination. And what is standing in the way of the Baluch actually achieving a separatist state? Is it there? Is it a lack of money? Is it a lack of coordination? Is it a lack of international support? What is the big hurdle that they would need to overcome to be able to gain more traction toward the separatist movement? The army, after the Pakistani security services, and the, uh, the lack of any uh, international support. I mean, insurgent movements prevail, usually require a foreign sponsor. Uh, a neighboring country that's willing to harbor insurgents, give, provide them a safe haven, a place to train, a place to recruit, a place to fundraise uh, and uh, project their insurgency into the neighboring country. Uh, and and uh, that's lacking in this case. So the Baluch are striving to achieve a more fair outcome. They watch Islamabad come in and sell their land to the Chinese, and extract the resource, allow locals to get beat up, and still the basic infrastructure in the majority of the province is the poorest in the country, with a lack of proper schools, hospitals, and support systems for a region in a province already struggling with water shortages and regular weather events. But where can they actually turn to for support, as the US wants to take no chances on destabilizing or splintering Pakistan, as once you roll that dice, it's a big unknown which way the country will go. Yeah, you might see a properly democratic reforming government come into power, but just as likely you might also end up with a Pakistani version of ISIS, who are now in charge of a nuclear arsenal. 
So as much as Islamabad and Washington differ on a number of issues, Washington has chosen to stick with the devil it knows. So what about China? Well, China too would prefer to have the Baluch movement crushed as it threatens the crown jewel of the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, the port of Guada. Beijing exclaims that what's the point in investing millions of dollars into a trade corridor if no one wants to use it due to the threat of attack? And as tough a decision as this may be, the deciding forces may not even be Islamabad or the Baluch, as Baluchistan has a very similar regional problem to the Kurds in Kurdistan. See, whilst the Kurds have an elevated amount of autonomy inside Iraq, its neighbors are acutely aware that if it were to become a state, then there would have to be a discussion on where to draw the borders, which in the case of the Kurds would mean taking a chunk of Turkey and Iran and Syria. So neither of those countries are looking to have that discussion. For the Baluch, drawing a new set of borders would mean starting a civil war in southeastern Iran and opening up a new front in Afghanistan between Kabul and the Baluch parts of the south of the country. Iran and Afghanistan have very little appetite to be redrawing the borders, adding to the now deafening chorus of nations now working against the Baluch. And as much as the Baluch want or even deserve their autonomy, there are entire blocks of regional and international superpowers that are standing in their way. Thanks so much for tuning into the show this week to talk about one of my favorite subjects, territorial disputes and their economic repercussions. You listen to it, so my poor fiancé doesn't have to. It's been another busy fortnight here back at the Red Line HQ, with video productions ramping up and work continuing on a number of big projects coming down the pipeline, so keep your eyes out for that. But to get informed right away with all of our upcoming events and everything we're up to at the moment, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Red Line Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at Mike Elliott Oz, Oz in Australia. This episode is dedicated to a friend of the show, Naja Nick, who's the latest patron to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of our listeners like Naja, who donate a small amount of money each month to help us keep this show going. And we cannot thank them enough. If you feel you can spare a couple of dollars, we would greatly appreciate it, and it helps us keep this show independent. So, this episode on the struggles of Baluchistan is all thanks to you, Naja. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is Pakistan, the Baluch Conundrum, by Telik Devasha, for a look at why Baluchistan greatly complicates Pakistan's politics. The second is Baluchistan, the Height of Oppression, by Azad Singh Rathor, for a look at some pretty graphic stories on how the Pakistan military cracks down on the Baluch. And the third is The Battle for Pakistan, the bitter US friendship and a tough neighborhood, discussing the US angle to this story. I want to thank this week's guests, Sahar Khan, Michael Kugelman, and James Dobbins. All of you, as always, absolutely fantastic to work with. I also want to thank my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Danielle Isabella, Isaac Gibbs, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. We are incredibly lucky here at the show to have the best of the best working for us. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, 
and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.